0: You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Nehemiah 9, I'm just jumping in tonight, it's, it's right in the middle of a revival. Uh, the building uh, of the walls is done, the, uh, the temple worship is intact, but as I said last time, a new, new construction, and with all the bells and whistles, does nothing if God's people aren't revived. So there's already been a revival of the building, there's been a revival of the work, but there hasn't yet been a real revival of the people yet. And last time we looked, we were in this actually in the same chapter. and We were looking at the marks of people that were seeking revival uh, or the marks of revived people. From this passage here in chapter 9, we saw how seriously they approached the temple. How seriously they came before God. They didn't just walk into the temple without preparation. And they didn't just sit down and say, okay, bless me, with no preparations at all. No, the Bible says they came prepared to meet with God... They came prepared for revival. We saw last time how the, the, the six marks of revived people are, it starts with self-humbling. They fasted, the Bible says. They put on sackcloth, which is black goat's hair. It's, not, it's coarse material. It's not comfortable. They, they threw ashes on their head. And, and if you understood in that time what ashes meant, you know, you think about uh, what did they do with the garbage? What, would they, what did they do with human waste in those days, well, they would take it outside they would, and put it in a pile and burn all of it. That's their idea of ashes. Ashes are not from the fireplace. Ashes are from a dirty place. That's how humble they were before God. So there was a self-humbling and, and there was a separation. It says that they separated from the people of the land. They took steps away from the world. And, and then there was lots of scripture reading. I mean, hours and hours of scripture reading. And then, in response to that, there was confession, they were getting things right, there was worship, they were expressing God's worth, and there was commitment, they were making a decision for the Lord. Sounds like a pretty good, and I'm not really into recipes or formulas for, re, or for revival, but I really think that's a good, a good idea of the kind of marks of the people that want revival. Uh, that you come humble and that you that you separate and that you have scripture and that you confess your sins and that you worship God and you make a commitment. And the point last time was if you want God's word to affect you in a meaningful way, you have to pre- approach God's word in a meaningful way. What you put into it will determine what you get out of it. And I do believe that very often we don't get as much out of the service at the end because we don't invest as much at the beginning. We don't purposely come prepared. We don't purposely humble ourselves. We don't purposely get prepared before we walk into the doors. We walk in and then we start preparing. And by that time, we've already missed a good part of the service. And how we, we, if we don't put anything into it, we probably won't get much out of it. But as I went through this text, I felt like that was a a helpful way to approach the text last time. But this text is significant to me. I could not escape the significance of chapter 9 and the prayer that's involved in chapter 9. This is the, like I said last time, it's the longest prayer in the Bible. and, And it was much likely, it was likely much longer when it was actually prayed in the moment. I mean, and when I say in the moment, it could have been like three hours of praying. I mean, this was, this, this was a long prayer. And it, and it was likely, you know, they were spending hours reading scripture, hours confessing, hours in worship. And even though I, I didn't spend much time on the actual prayer last time, I couldn't move on without one more look at it tonight. I mean, in the longest prayer in the Bible, it seems like we ought to take a look at its content. That we ought to really kind of examine what it was about. And I believe that this prayer has some helpful elements to it. And before you groan about prayer, you know, we're, you know, we're in church. We hear messages about prayer all the time. Here we go again. Well, let me ask you a few questions. And I want to give credit where credit is due. I read a leadership book on Nehemiah from a pastor named Chuck Swindoll. And maybe you've heard of him. He's a famous, uh, well-known evangelical pastor. And I don't necessarily agree with, obviously, with all of his doctrinal positions. But his insight into Nehemiah's life um, has been helpful to me. And, um, and again, I don't, I don't get my messages from him. Just so you know, Uh, I try to read, I try to be well-rounded, but some of the points that he made in this passage were extremely helpful. And he asked these five questions about prayer. And I just want you to soak these in before you think, okay, another message on prayer. Let me ask you these questions. First of all, are you satisfied with the condition of your prayer life? Are you satisfied with the condition of your prayer life? You say, well, I pray before every meal. It's not what I'm talking about. Are you satisfied with the condition of your prayer life? Second, when you pray, do you pray with confidence? Third, when someone asks you to pray for them, do you remember to pray for them? Fourth, if you were asked to name four or five specific matters of prayer you've taken to the Lord this week, could you name them? And five, is your time in God's word balanced with time in prayer? Those are excellent questions. And if you answered yes to all those questions, you can leave. So go ahead, you can pack yourself up. And so we'll just wait. We'll give you a minute. So, and you're taking a while. You know why? Because those questions, if we're being honest, probably most of us would say no to most of those questions. Now, and I'm not not trying to be, I'm not trying to indict you. I'm looking at myself as well, because we can always use help and and encouragement in our prayer life, folks. So dealing with prayer tonight, it shouldn't be a completely fruitless use of our time. I, I think it's helpful. And the truth is, based on this account, if we're to experience revival, which I don't know about you, but I don't want to just function and maintain as a church. I mean, I'm not content, and, and maybe you are, and, and, I, and I hate it for you, but, but I want revival at Eastside Baptist Church, and I want revival in the life of Jason Jett. That's what I want. I don't want to just maintain. I don't just want status quo, and, but if we're to experience revival in our lives, prayer has to make, to play a vital role in revival. It has to. I think the problem is not that we don't want to pray, but that we either don't pray or we don't pray effectively. But if revival is dependent on prayer, then it must be a priority to us. And in order to illustrate this tonight, um, how how maybe this text presents revival prayer, I'm going to talk about microphones. I bet you were expecting that, weren't you? Microphones. See, uh, as I was thinking about this prayer, I w- there are two primary kinds of microphones. And I'm, I'm just going to make it awkward for Ms. Jessica here for just a moment. You know, this right here is, a, is a, a, a solo microphone. This is the kind of microphone, obviously, that you hold in your hand and you use here. This, is, this would be considered a, a unidirectional microphone, meaning that primarily that the audio for this microphone comes from one direction you point you point your mouth right to the top of the microphone and that's where it primarily picks up it's a unidirectional microphone it's good for solo singing but if you put it on a stand and you have a group of people around it it's not going to do a very good job because it's mostly picking up in one direction unidirectional microphone on the other hand you have microphones like this right here this in this in the choir loft these we've got two of these and these are omnidirectional microphones omnidirectional microphones i think you get the idea the the pattern on an omnidirectional microphone is not just right down the line in one spot it's got to pick up multiple people and you know usually it's the wrong person standing right underneath it but but otherwise you know it, it's got to pick up this row and this row and this row it's got to pick up a large pattern of people it's omnidirectional i think you understand the difference pretty simple the pattern is the difference Certain mics work better for different applications. Univer- uni- unidirectional mics work well for solos, not as well for a group. Omnidirectional microphones are great for picking up multiple people or a choir. And I, and I use that as an idea because we often approach prayer unidirectionally. And, and by that, I mean that many of our prayers are focused in one direction. And unfortunately, and, and I'd say the average prayer of God's people is focused on self, meaning we, we tend to pray for all the things that we need. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, because if you're like me, you've got lots of needs. We ought to take our needs before the Lord, right? Who else is going to help us with our needs? And, but, and, but as important as prayer is, it's fairly easy for our petitions before God to become an exercise in self-focus. A unidirectional focus. And usually the focus is on self. God, I, I have this need. Give me this. Father, please do this for me. Please answer this request to fix this problem in my life unidirectional prayer. And it's so easy to make our times of prayer all about asking God for the things that we need or the things that we want. And listen, there's a time and place for that. It's necessary, but let's be honest, it's easy to make prayer unidirectional. It's easy for prayer to become, without even thinking about it, to become an exercise in self-focus, one focus, one thought process, one direction, me, me. And like all things, we tend to make, like, we can even make prayer about us. We're really good at making just about anything about us. And we can make a spiritual exercise even about us. And yet we see from this revival prayer in Nehemiah that prayer was definitely more an omnidirectional pattern. See, in this case, uh, in the case of this prayer, that in Nehemiah 9, there are four directions of focus, really. And so I just want to look at this as an omnidirectional look at prayer. And because there are directions that, God, that this prayer goes that, that we maybe often don't focus on. And, and so I want to just give you four looks, four, four directions, omnidirectional, four omnidirectional prayers, what you might call it, or revival, omnidirectional revival prayer. And it starts with a look upward. It starts with a look upward. It's a great way to start your prayer. See, they began a a three-hour worship service with prayer focused on God. Look at Nehemiah chapter 5. It says, Then the Levites, Jeshua, and Kadmiel, and Bani, and Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodijah... This is Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 5. Shebaniah, Pethahiah, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever... And blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou, even thou art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. The earth and all the thing, all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Do you see where the focus is? In this directional prayer starts, it starts with a look upward. They begin their revival prayer by simply focusing on who God is. This isn't about asking, it's about adoration. Revival prayer. See, we think if I'm going to make a revival prayer, then God, I need revival. God send me revival. God, do this for me. But in this revival prayer, they start by focusing on God Himself. It's not, it's not asking, it's adoration. Revival prayer, honestly, prayer in general should begin with a true, focused, fervent time of praise to God. Why does it say the model prayer says, uh, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. It's not about us when we start. And I'm going to encourage you tonight to when you start in your prayer life, start by looking upward. And listen, not a, a token sentence or two. Uh, Not just, oh God, you're a great God. Okay, now let me get down to the meat of the prayer. No, I mean take the time that you need. I'm talking putting all the thoughts of yourself aside and focus solely on the attributes and the character and the qualities of God. And don't don't forget how all this started out. There was self-humbling and there was fasting and ashes and, and sackcloth. And just for perspective, ashes, again, were a picture of something much different than what we think of it. That's what the ashes represent, the filth of life, the garbage, the dung, the waste. Just so we understand the humility involved in, in this time of prayer, this wasn't just, I'm sorry, this was, I'm undone. This isn't just, oh, I really blew that. No, this is God. I don't even deserve to be in your presence. I'm considering right now who you are and all that you are. And God, I am undone before you. When you get a true glimpse of God like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, uh, he said, whoa, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. He didn't even feel like he could be in the presence of God. That's, that's the attitude he had. And listen, the more that your look is upward, the better you get a glimpse of God and the more accurately you will see yourself. It calibrates us. And as you understand the difference between you and God, you can't help but be completely and wholly undone. His holiness and your sin, they couldn't be further apart, folks. And we need the time of looking upward so that our view of self can be accurate. And We won't have a, an accurate view of ourselves until we have an accurate view of God. Because most of the time we give ourselves far too much credit. Most of the time we imagine that we are, we're far better than we really are. But when you get a true glimpse of who God is, that's when you start to see yourself or who you really are. Kind of like one of us imagining, well, you know, I'm a pretty good basketball player. And you go down to the park um, somewhere here in Sioux Falls, you start playing basketball. And LeBron James pulls up and challenges you to a game of one-on-one. See, you may have a high opinion of your basketball skills, but compared to LeBron James, you're humbled very quickly, I can imagine. And God is so much higher than LeBron James, by the way. You can write that down, okay? Not until we get an accurate view of God do we view ourselves accurately. You know, this is also essential to look upward because the, the more that you focus on the attributes of God, I want you to think about this, the more you trust in his abilities. When you realize that everything that comes your way, listen to this. When you realize that everything that comes your way has already been filtered through the heart and the hands of God... Suddenly you find yourselves with more faith and trust and peace. Let me say that again. I don't know if you, if you caught it. When you realize that everything that comes your way, folks, good or bad, has been filtered through the heart and hands of God himself, you suddenly find yourself much more at peace with your circumstances. Because in your mind you're thinking, no, he's already filtered this. He already knows about this. Listen, God's sovereignty and his infinite power and his absolute faithfulness give us confidence in everything we face, good or bad. See, that leads directly then to the second direction of revival prayer. And I'll probably come back to that in a moment. But So it starts with a look upward, but then, and this is the longest section, it goes into a look backward. So it starts with a look upward, and that is on God, but then they go to a look backward. And this prayer includes, this is a pretty comprehensive view of Israel's history. So I I would like to read this tonight, and as we do, I want to encourage everybody, would you just have a uh, a Bible, have it open, and let's read this together. It's never bad for us uh, to be reminded of Israel's history. So, I mean, kids, if you don't if you have a I get a Bible from the pew and maybe just hold it in your hands. Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to do lots of reading here for just a little bit. And I just want to look at Israel's history. And I want to start in, in verses seven and eight. So Nehemiah chapter nine, verse seven. Again, this is after the look upward. Now we're we'll have a look backward. It says, Thou art the Lord the God. "...who didst choose Abram, and broughtest him forth out of, the, out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gavest him the name Abraham, and foundest his heart faithful before thee, and madest a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous." So we see here how God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. And I'm not going to give you commentary on all of these. I hope that you'll follow along enough to get the idea. So then after that, he talks about the covenant with Abraham, that really is a summary of the book of Genesis. We're going to see how they actually go through The books of the Old Testament in some ways or the stories. And it starts with this central story of Genesis, which is God calling Abram out and making a covenant with Abraham. Look down in verse 9. Then they recall the incredible provision of God to bring them out of Egypt. Look at 9. And didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heardest their cry by the Red Sea, and it signs and wonders upon Pharaoh, and on all his servants, and on all the people of his land, for thou knewest that they dealt proudly against them. So didst thou get thee a name as it is this day, and thou didst divide the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors thou threwest into the deep, as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, thou lettest in the day by a cloudy pillar and in the night by a pillar of fire to give them light in the way wherein they should go so what book of the bible would you say that's a summary of it's exodus right the exodus out of out of egypt into the wilderness and eventually into canaan land and you know what i love about that story talks about the red sea dividing the red sea Doesn't it seem like when when they're in the wilderness and they're having a tough time thinking, did you bring us into the wilderness to die? Does God still love us? It seems like the Red Sea comes up. The Red Sea is kind of that reminder. And really, in some ways, it's a picture of our salvation as we exit Egypt and we start making our way to the promised land. And it's a good thing for us to look back on our salvation if we ever start to wonder whether or not God loves us. He's made it very clear already. We look at the cross, which is almost a picture, kind of like the Red Sea that God certainly does. The prayer continues with a look back into the, the giving of the law. Look at verses thirteen through fifteen. It says, "Thou camest down also upon Mount Sinai and spakest with them from heaven and gave us them right judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments." And by the way, that starts in Exodus, but, but what book of the first books of the five books of the Bible really is, is de- demonstrates the giving of the law? Do you remember? It's Leviticus. Leviticus is really heavily about the giving of the law. So that's kind of where we're, we're at in the story of Israel. Leviticus, look at verse 14. And made us known unto them thy holy Sabbath, and commanded them precepts, statutes and laws by the hand of Moses thy servant, and gave us them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and promises them uh, that they should go in to possess the land which thou hast sworn to give them, So again, we see the story going through with the children of Israel and and how God always is faithful. We'll see how that's the account, how that really is the central idea here. The next part starts to really deal with their sins. You know, to this point, we've just seen how God called them Abraham and, and how God took care of them in the wilderness. But I'm thankful they don't ignore the sins of their forefathers. Look down at verse 16. But they and our fathers dealt proudly, and hardened their necks, and hearkened not to thy commandments, and refused to obey. Neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks, and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. Yea, when they had made them a molten calf and said, this is thy God that brought thee up out of Egypt and had wrought great provocations. Yet thou, I love these verses, in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in a way, neither the pillar of, the, of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein thou sh- they should go. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them and withheld us not by manna from their mouth and gave us them water for their thirst. Yea, 40 years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness so that they lacked nothing, their clothes waxed not old and their feet swelled not wow even all the sin even turning their backs even rebellion and god got all the way down to the detail he said i'm their their feet didn't even swell up i mean some of us can't even walk on a treadmill for 20 minutes without that happening (laughs) 40 years i don't know where that came from that was not in my notes (laughs) 40 years and their feet didn't swell I'm just going to preach a whole message on on feet swelling because it's mentioned right here. I mean, that just blows my mind. I mean, God took care of those kind of details and not with people that deserved it. And as he gives us a summary of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the wilderness often brought out the worst in the children of Israel, didn't it? I mean, those tough days brought out the worst. And despite their sins of grumbling and murmuring, God remained faithful. We'll move on. The next section of prayer relates to the story of Joshua and Israel conquering the land of Canaan. Look at verse 22. "...moreover thou gavest them kingdoms and nations, and didst and divide them into corners, so they possessed the land of Sihon, and the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Their children also multipliedst thou as the stars of heaven." And broughtest them into the land concerning which thou hast promised to their fathers that they should go in to possess it. So the children went in and possessed the land and thou subdu- subduest before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gavest them into their hands which, with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they, st- they took strong cities in a fat land and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards and olive yards and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. Wow. I mean, you start to really just read a summary of all that God did for the children of Israel and they didn't deserve one bit of it. And yet God sent them into the land of Canaan. They took strong cities uh, and they had wells already digged, houses full already, olive yards, vineyards. It was all just waiting for them. That's how good, how, that kind of care God took care of his children. And yet we come to a new era, in the era of the judges. And they don't, There's not covered a lot here, uh, but, but, but the implication is obvious here. The era of the judges is found in the next part. Judge was, judges was a, tar, a dark time for Israel, wasn't it? Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. I mean, I could stop right there, couldn't I? You just think about all that we just talked about. I mean, olive yards and houses already full and wells already dug and they got fat and they were prosperous and it was a good thing. And yet, nevertheless, they were disobedient. I mean, that's another message where we could just stop right there. And the message could be called, nevertheless, they were disobedient. And we could just review all the blessings that God has given us in our lives and yet all the times, even in spite of his blessings, nevertheless, they were disobedient. It says, and rebelled against thee, and cast thy law behind their backs, and Slew thy prophets which testified against them to turn them to thee and they wrought great provocations. Therefore, what did God do? Thou deliverest them into the hand of their enemies who vexed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried unto thee, thou hurtest them from heaven. And according to thy manifold mercies, again, thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. What's that talking about? What, what book of the Bible? Talking about Judges? The saviors that God would send, verse twenty-eight, and but after that, after they had rest, they did evil again before thee. Therefore, leftest thou them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had the dominion over them. Yet when they returned and cried unto thee, what happened? Thou, I, if it was me, I'd be like, you ignored them this time. Thank you, Lord. No, nope, not at all. No, it says, thou. I don't even know where I'm at. Thou hurtest them from heaven, and many times did many times. Thou didst thou deliver them according to thy mercies and tef- testifyest against them that thou mightest bring them again unto thy law? Yet they dealt proudly and hearkened not unto thy commandments, but sinned against thy judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, and withdrew the shoulder and hardened their neck and would not hear. I mean, think about the judges. I mean... We could, the book of Judges is incredible. I can't wait someday to preach out of it. But you have, I think, seven cycles of God's blessings and then Israel's sin and their, their decline as a nation. The oppression that they had from their enemies, uh, their repentance for their sins, and then deliverance through one of God's servants. And you think, okay, they learned their lessons. But no, prosperity, decline, sin, oppression, repentance, prosperity. Decline, sin. I mean, the cycle over and over and over and over again. And we could just stop there and preach about how that applies to us, couldn't we? I mean, God in his his manifold mercies over and over, he comes and delivers us, but then we go right back to it. And, I, and the, the, the language in, at the end of verse 29, it says they withdrew the shoulder. It says they hardened their neck and they would not hear. Like a, a, like a child who's being rebellious and doesn't want mom's hand or dad's hand on his shoulder. And you reach out and they just pull the shoulder away. I and mean, it's so, so childish and yet that's what this nation of Israel is doing. And yet through it all, folks, God remained faithful... They eventually got through the judges and they come to the zenith, you might say, of, of Israel's history under King David. And you thought, okay, finally we've come through this. And then Solomon comes along. Solomon introduces idolatry and his son Rehoboam divides the kingdom and it leads to centuries of kings hot and cold. Look at verse 30. Yet many years didst thou forbear them and testifies against them by thy spirit and thy prophets. Yet would they not give ear? Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the land. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. And this is the time where they had they had sinned so much, the kings they were so evil, uh, finally, you know, Israel just disappeared. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, you know, they, they go into captivity and they're in captivity and finally and finally, God brings them back because he's still merciful. You know, if I was to sum this up tonight, I would say is what you see here is a contrast of character. If we could sum it up, we might say something like this. God is faithful in spite of human failures. And that's so simple. And I, I know, and I could, I'd love to expound on it but I'm focusing on prayer tonight. God is faithful in spite of our human failures. God is always faithful, and we're not. I mean, God God is always faithful, and he blesses us, and he he gives us so many gifts, and, and his manifold mercy, and he gives us chance after chance after chance, and yet what do we do? We withdraw our shoulder again. We find ourselves right back in this, in this cycle. And when you consider God's power and his character and his, his concern for us, it makes you appreciate at least the fact that he is faithful and he's faithful that much. And, and it's good for us. And listen, and, and I'm not, I could, there's so much I could preach on here, but I want to keep the big picture. It's good for us to look backward sometimes. Now, I'm not saying dwell on the past. And I'm not saying glorify sin because some people can do that, can't they? I'm not saying dwell on the past. I'm not saying glorify sin, but I'm saying when you look back, what I get out of this is I don't get that any of the people praying were like, Y'all, hey, remember when, uh, when they were rebellious against God? Oh my word, that was, I can't believe they did it. No, no, they, they very matter-of-factly say they were rebellious, they were stiff-necked, they withdrew the shoulder, and yet God, every time, God was merciful every time God, God showed love and compassion every time and when they repented God would forgive them again and he'd give them blessings again because God's a covenant God and he's not just going to forget his promises he's going to keep his promises because God is faithful even when we're failures. And that's the point that I see in this prayer. They're not looking backward and glorifying sin... ...and they're not looking backward and focusing on their failures. They're looking back and they're focusing on God's faithfulness in their lives. And it's not bad to look back and be honest about your failures... ...but when you look back, you should not focus on them. Focus on the faithfulness of God. And I believe it'd be a good exercise for every family... ...to just sit down around the dinner table sometimes... And look back on God's faithfulness. For parents to say, kids, this is what we went through at this one time. And, and it was a struggle and it was tough. But God is faithful. And, and kids, and we want you to know, I mean, life hasn't always been as easy as it might seem right now. Uh, it was hard at this time. And this happened to us. And we were in this trial. And I even blew it this, that one time. As, you know, One time, as a dad, I'll admit, I blew it. That one time. But God was still faithful. Not real. I mean, I, if I recounted all my failures, the truth is my kids see them anyway. But it would be good for us to look back and just recount God's faithfulness. And as you do, remember, it's omnidirectional focus. You, you start by looking up, and it's not bad then when you pray to look backward and remember God's faithfulness. And as you do it, it, it causes you, third, to look inward. So you look upward, and then you look backward, and then you look inward. When you start to consider who God is, you can't help but be amazed that he'd be faithful to you. See, and recounting his faithfulness helps bring into perspective just how much we owe him. Look at verse 32. Now therefore, because of all your faithfulness, God, our God, the great, the mighty, and the terrible God, who keep his covenant and mercy, let not all the trouble seem little before thee. That thou hast come upon us on our kings, on our princes, and on our priests, and on our prophets, and on our fathers, and on all thy people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. How be it thou art just in all that that is brought upon us. For thou hast done right, but we have done wickedly. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, nor our fathers kept thy law, nor hearkened unto thy commandments and thy testimonies, wherewith thou didst testify against them. For they have not served thee in their kingdom, and in thy great goodness that thou gavest them, and in the large and fat land which thou gavest before them, neither turned they from their wicked works. Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that thou gavest unto our fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. And it yieldeth much increase unto the kings whom thou hast set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. You know, this prayer is interesting because... What we see here is after you look upward at God and you look backward at his faithfulness, you start to look inward. And when you compare yourself to God, you start to accept the fact that, God, I am wholly responsible for the position I'm in. I'm not looking to blame anybody for my failures. I'm not looking to blame anybody for my mistakes. And God, honestly, the the position I'm in right now, the, the difficulty I'm in right now, I deserve it. I mean, I see kind of, there's a lot of honesty in this prayer. I mean, I I go back to verse 32 when they said, Let not all the trouble seem little before thee that hath come upon us. What they're saying is, God, it's been really hard. Lord, this is really difficult. But please, Lord, don't overlook how hard it's been. And you know what? I want to just tell you today, it's okay to be honest with God when you pray. It's okay to just pour your heart out to God and be honest with him and say God it's been hard. It's been difficult and Lord I'm asking that you'd let not the trouble that seem little before thee. If you could find in your heart to show mercy just one more time God please. Now it doesn't mean that when you're honest that you can make excuses. I mean, they still acknowledge their responsibility and, and, and they're making this an important part of the revival prayer. An important part of revival prayer, folks, is that, yes, it may be hard, um, but but also then to just let God know, but I acknowledge that I, it's hard because of my mistakes. I acknowledge it's hard because I don't deserve any better than that. God, it is hard, but I just want to take, I want you to understand I take full responsibility uh, that that I have plenty of blame on myself. I mean, and then they go through and it's so ironic. They say, God, you're continuing to bless Canaan, the place that you gave us, Israel. You're blessing it still, except now we're under the control of these other kings. And and we're being, the blessing's still coming, but we're having to send it all back to these kings that rule over us. God, we acknowledge that, yeah, we're back in our land, but we're serving somebody else. Somebody else has control of this. But, but, you know, but what I, I appreciate is they don't say, God, it's hard, and it's not fair. No, they say, God, it's hard, and we deserve it. And that's part of revival prayer. Is that, yes, you admit that, that it's hard, but you're also willing to take responsibility for your role in how difficult it is. But I just want to go back to the fact that it's okay to be vulnerable with God. You know, it may, it may not be your personality, to be open, maybe your personality to be closed off and to put up walls and to keep people at arm's length. But let me just say this. First, that's not how a family should operate. Here at Eastside Baptist Church, I want to encourage you to be yourself. I want to encourage you to open up and be vulnerable and be real with each other. I think it's a good thing for us to be. Bear one another's burdens, the Bible says. And I think there's too, much, there are too many walls in, in Baptist churches these days because we all feel like we've got a reputation to uphold and I want people to think I'm in a certain place but you know it's okay if you just want to let somebody know that things aren't I mean it's not an easy day or something it's okay to be vulnerable with each other but I want to take that even a step further and say it's completely silly not to be open with God and not to be completely vulnerable and to be completely honest and here's why he knows what you're thinking already He knows what's in your heart. He knows what you're struggling with. And you might as well just say it out loud. Be open with God. And my point in all this is revival prayers needs to be real, sincere prayer. If you want revival in your life, don't come with a formula before God. No formulate prayer here. No buzzwords. You know, don't say Father God a hundred times in a two-minute prayer. No, be real about it. Be open about it and say, God, yes, it's hard. But Lord, I also know I don't deserve any better. God, yes, it's difficult. And and I'm just going to ask if you could just take this away and help me with this. But Lord, in the end, I also know how many times I've failed you and I really don't deserve any better. But God, would you just show me mercy one more time? Stop with the buzzwords. Stop with the, the prayers you've heard your whole life and just be real before God. That's omnidirectional prayer. And it can be summed up as looking upward and looking backward and looking inward. And finally, once all that takes place, you can finally start to look forward. Look at verse 38. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it in our princes, Levites, and priests' seal unto it. Folks, listen, they saw God clearly. And they recounted what he'd done for them in spite of their failures, and they accepted responsibility for their present condition. And only after that process were they ready to move forward. And this is where the rubber meets the road. They know spiritual renewal requires a decision, it requires a choice, it requires a plan. A lot of times in church, we come and yeah, we get an accurate view of God. We look upward and we look backward and we're thankful for all of his mercy. And we look inward and we confess our sins and we take full responsibility. But when it's time for invitation, we say amen and we walk out the door without a plan. And and when that happens, folks, you're no different than you were when you came in because there's no change. And we've got to be careful. Listen, if God prompts your heart in the preaching and the teaching of God's word, make a plan. Make a decision. And and, and I'm not even saying you've got to come forward and, and, you know, snot and slobber all over the altar. Although I'm not opposed to that. We have people that clean it up, so it's fine. But what I am saying is if all the emotion is present and God or even if God prompts you to make a decision and when invitation comes, you're like, "Okay, I got to make sure I go talk to them after church. You forget all about it. The Bible says it's like a man will be holding himself in a glass and then going his way and forgetting what manner of man man he is. It's self-deception at its finest. If God prompts you in these things toward revival, toward getting right, toward to going a new direction in your life, and you don't make a plan, then you're deceived. And I want to encourage you to make a plan, to look forward, to say, okay, I'm going there, that's where I want to go, and I want to make a plan to get there. They make it clear here they want to go a new direction. They're not content. They don't want to follow the, the path of their forefathers. And, uh, they make it clear they want, to, they want to be in a different place. And they're deciding. And this is important. They're deciding to change the trends of their forefathers that have been present for generations. And they know, listen, it's not likely we're going to change those trends unless we make a plan. Because so, it's so in grounded in us to be this way. We need God's help. Listen, you won't move forward spiritually until you turn and look upward and then look backward and then look inward and then turn that into a commitment to look forward, move forward. It's time for some of us to look forward. And you've been in a certain cycle in your life for a long time. Revival means spiritually changing course. It's a return to Bible truth. It's the simple definition of revival. No longer being content with your present position. And it just comes down to seeing things clearly enough to want something different. And as you get a glimpse of God, listen, I hope you feel humble. As you consider his faithfulness, uh, feel grateful as much as you can. Be grateful. As you consider your responsibility and your position, it's okay to be guilty. Feel guilty because you are. But none of those feelings will translate into change. You have to decide that you're going to look forward. You're going to make a plan to look forward. So the the omnidirectional way of praying is look upward, a look upward, a look backward, a look inward, and a look forward. And I'm just going to close with these questions. Are you dwelling on something behind you that's keeping you from moving forward? This morning we talked about Abram and Haran and and Terah was his delay. Listen, looking back isn't wrong as long as your focus is on God's faithfulness and not your failures. But listen, we've got a lot of people, and I believe maybe even plenty at Eastside, that can't move forward because they beat themselves up over past failures. And the point of the prayer here is not to focus on the failure. It was to focus on the faithfulness of God. And if you've got something in your past that you just can't move forward from, listen, if you've confessed it and you've learned from it, uh, it's time for you to leave it behind. Don't let, don't let your past be your lid. Don't let your family background be your lid. Don't assume, well, this is where I come from, so this is my option. No, don't allow some failure to be what prevents you from moving forward for God. Second, where does God want to take you spiritually? Spiritually. Like, where do you know that you're supposed to be? And, and if you're not in Ur and you're somewhere along the way, maybe you're in Haran, but God wants you to be all the way in Canaan. And you know you're not where you're supposed to be and, you, and you're looking forward and you say, that's where God wants me. But listen, some people live in the moment so much they fail to dream big for God. And I'm not trying to be, you know, this isn't psycho babble. But I, know, I know people that never look past the hood of their life's car. I mean, they, they never really look forward all, to all that God wants them to be. They assume they'll always be what they've always been. But listen, we can learn from the children of Israel that there should be a desire in us to be more. To, to move past where we are in our spiritual lives and to say, I don't want that anymore. I want to move forward in my life. I, got, I, I want to, by the end of my life, I want to experience and fulfill everything that you desire for me. Not what my parents set for me or not what my own limitations seem to be setting for me. God, I want you to be my standard for my spiritual life. Third, if you want change, are you praying for change? See, we can want change all day, but revival and spiritual renewal comes through prayer. Don't leave God out of the process. You cannot do it on your own. Fourth, have you grown accustomed to one unidirectional prayer? Your prayer life is always, God, give me. Like a spiritual vending machine. So when God doesn't, listen, so if that's your, the way that you pray, think about this. If God, when God doesn't answer like you hope, you have nothing to feel except disappointment. Now think about it. If all you do is pray unidirectionally, then when God doesn't give you what you hope he'll give you, all you end up with is Disappointment. But if you pray omnidirectionally, then your prayer life has spent time focusing upward and that does nothing but benefit us. And your, your prayer life has spent time looking backward to God's faithfulness and that can't do anything but benefit you. And your prayer life has also been spent looking inward and that self-examination can't be anything but beneficial to you. But if all you do is pray unidirectionally, God, God give me this, God, give me this, then your contentment levels will be dependent on whether or not God prays. If you've missed the process of change, ...that prayer is supposed to make in you. Omni-directional revival prayer... ...grows our faith by focusing on God... ...it increases our gratitude by considering His faithfulness... ...and it accepts responsibility for our actions... ...and all of that gives us hope to move forward... ...whether or not God answers our requests... ...like we think He should. Even when we don't get the answers we hope for... ...we're being affected by the process... The point of revival prayer is not how much we get, it's how much we're changed. And I think it's time for us to adjust our focus in revival prayer. And as we do, I have no doubt God will respond with spiritual change in us. And and to close this, I, I want to go back to the broader application. Maybe it's just about your prayer life. And I want to ask again, are you satisfied with the condition of your prayer life? And when you pray, do you pray with confidence? When someone asks you to pray for them, do you remember to do it? If you were asked to name four or five specific matters of prayer that you've taken to the Lord this week, could you? And is your time and God's word balanced with time and prayer? So whether or not the revival, omnidirectional revival prayer applies i imagine that one of those questions applies to everybody in this room and truth is we all need to examine our prayer lives and in the end we have a tendency again to be unidirectional in our prayers one focus one direction and yet god wants us to be omnidirectional it's a look upward a look backward a look inward and a look forward how's your prayer life is it reflecting those things, or is it very unidirectional, all focused on me? Let's stand together. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to encourage you to respond tonight if the Lord's spoken to you about prayer. We won't take long an invitation this evening, but I, I, I want to give him an opportunity to do work. I do think that our prayers, if we want revival at Eastside Baptist Church, they need to, our prayers need to be focused on revival. They need to be focused not just on ourselves. And maybe one of these has been missing in your prayer life. Maybe you've been missing the look upward in your daily prayer and you're not really giving God much time and praise. Maybe you've been looking or you've been forsaking the look backwards and you, you're, you're focusing on your failures but you're missing God's faithfulness. And maybe you're not spending enough time looking inward and that you're not taking full responsibility for your present condition and yet you're responsible And maybe you're not spending enough time looking forward. You're focused on what's around or what's back or what's happened, but you're not really having a vision for what God wants you to be in the future. I don't know how maybe one of these might apply in your life. Maybe the questions on prayer apply. But let's just take a moment tonight and let the Lord do a work in us about our prayer lives. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word. I pray you let it have the effect that we know you want it to have. As the instrument plays, Lord, in Jesus' name, Amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.